Greetings, everyone. I'm Mike Wong, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. This summer, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, released its sixth report on our changing climate. Its central finding was that human activity has caused global temperatures to soar higher than at any other time in the past 125,000 years, and that this signals an undeniable code red for humanity. Why? Because climate models show that even if we magically shut down all of our carbon emissions this instant, Greenhouse gases will linger in our atmosphere and continue to warm our planet for decades to come. There is no getting out of this now. Things are going to go from bad to worse. More heat waves and wildfires in dry places, more hurricanes and floods in wet ones, and more devastation to both natural ecosystems and our built environments. Now, while this all sounds terribly grim, we still have a choice about how bad things will get. The next few years and decades will be crucial for determining whether we eventually reverse the direction of climate change or if we'll let it spin out of hand forever. In order to avoid the latter, we'll need to raise the profile of the climate crisis and promote actions, little daily ones, and big structural ones that can help us solve it. And that is where Star Trek can help, argues today's guest, Dr. Maddie Stone. Maddie is a science journalist who focuses on the environment, climate change, and energy. She holds a PhD in Earth and Environmental Sciences from the University of Pennsylvania, and now works as a freelance writer with regular contributions to National Geographic, The Washington Post, Grist, and other top science news outlets. I met Maddie when she interviewed me for a newsletter post about biological mishaps in Star Trek. That post is in the show notes, and I highly encourage you all to check out her newsletter, The Science of Fiction, which is about exactly what it sounds like. And if you're listening to this podcast, you'll obviously love it. Today, Maddie and I are tackling the enormous topic of climate change and Star Trek. We both agree that Star Trek does far too little to tackle climate change head-on. So in this episode, we are going to recap three instances of environmentalism in Star Trek's past, namely TNG's Force of Nature, Voyager's 30 Days, and of course Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And then we are going to make a case for how contemporary Star Trek can more widely and more deeply connect with present-day climate issues. So, without further ado, Let's hit it. So it's my absolute pleasure to welcome science journalist Maddie Stone to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Uh, Maddie, welcome. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, definitely. Let's begin by getting to know you a little bit. So you have a doctorate in earth and environmental science, and you now spend your time writing a lot about these topics, among others, as a science journalist. So what is it about the environment that draws you in and compels you to share those stories? Mm, Great question. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a big picture sense, it's something we all experience, right? So Mm -hmm. obviously, we all have direct experiences with the weather, with the climate in, you know, our particular corner of the world. And I think increasingly, we all, um, maybe not all of us personally, but um, we all know someone or have at least read about someone or a community that has had experiences with climate change. And um, that's only going to become, you know, more apparent to all of us as we enter this sort of new, new reality that we're in. And um, I think climate change is the most, you know, fascinating story of our time. It's obviously a bad news story in a lot of ways. But um, I also think we're on the cusp of this, hopefully, um, enormous energy transition that's going to sort of lead to massive societal changes. And I think it's a it's a very exciting time to be talking about environmental sciences, talking about climate science, what we know about the future, and also what we know about how we're going to adapt as a society and transition our energy systems. I I think it's the biggest story of our time, and um, I'm excited to be part, uh, a very small part of the large growing network of, you know, journalists and science communicators who are telling that story. Absolutely. Yeah. And we'll talk more um, later about how climate change interfaces with Star Trek and, um, you know, energy transitions and all all that sort of stuff in a bit. Um, But you're a lifelong Star Trek fan too, right? I am a lifelong Star Trek fan. So I grew up in the 90s. So I was definitely a TNG DS9 Voyager kid. I watched all of the shows. Awesome! (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I feel like most adult Trekkies these days are either, you know, they grew up with the original series or they grew up with like the 1990s reboots. So I, yeah, I grew up watching all of those on TV. Um, probably got into it because of my mom, who um, is also a Trekkie and grew up watching the original series back in the 60s and 70s. And yeah, so Star Trek has just sort of always been part of my life, more broadly speaking. I'm just a huge science fiction fan. I'm not exclusively a Star Trek fan. I, you know, I also like Star Wars um, for different mm-hmm. reasons. I, I read a lot of science fiction growing up. I still do. But yeah, Star Trek has sort of always been really important to me. And um, about 10 years ago, I introduced my um, then boyfriend, now husband to Next Generation, and he got really into it. And that led to us rewatching every episode of every season of all Star Trek. And um, it was at that point that I watched the original series for the first time, which I had never watched growing up. And also the animated series um, from the 70s, which is delightfully overlooked little series, (laughs) in my opinion. (laughs) So I would say I'm probably more of a Trekkie now than I ever was now that my husband and I have it as something that we both enjoy and share and rewatch on a very regular basis. <laughs> Your story sounds awfully familiar to me because it's uh, it very much mirrors my own. I only watched the animated series all the way through for the first time during quarantine, during the COVID pandemic, uh, and that was a trip. <laughs> <laughs> um, can, I, yep. 
Can I ask you for uh, your rapid fire favorite captain, favorite series, favorite movie, and favorite starship? Favorite captain, favorite series, favorite movie, favorite starship. Okay. All right. Um, Favorite captain, super hard choice, but I think I would have to go with Captain Janeway because she's Mm -hmm. a scientist, um, because she is just like, kind of headstrong and very charismatic and amazing, but mostly because she's the scientist captain. And I think that's really cool. And I think it's great that they put a woman in that role. Um, favorite movie. Was that the next one? Series favorite movie, Starship. Mo- favorite series. Well, Janeway is my favorite captain, but I think for favorite series, I'm going to have to go with Deep Space Nine just because, well, a lot of reasons, but um, I just think it has some of the, most innovative and complex and interesting plot lines and long arcs of the entire series. And it's just deals with a lot of really sort of pressing issues of the time that are still very relevant today. So Deep Space Nine favorite series, favorite movie would be Star Trek for the Voyage Home, the classic (laughs) Save the Whales movie of the Trek franchise. Um, And what was the next one? Favorite Favorite Starship. Starship. Mm -hmm favorite starship you know that's interesting i've never been asked that before and um i don't know that i have a favorite one but i will say that i'm currently re-watching star trek enterprise and i think that the nx01 is kind of the most underrated of the starships i mean it's the first warp five vessel it's the first mm-hmm. human ship to go into interstellar space and um it's kind of janky in a lot of ways like they don't have all the systems working yet you know the replicators aren't online the transporters sometimes send people into like the wrong dimension so i just have a lot of respect for the crew of the enterprise for you know taking what is essentially a prototype ship and going on all these far-flung adventures with it so props to the nx01 yeah i like that a lot i think enterprise should get a little more love than it does uh sometimes and so i'm glad that you completely agree yeah Yeah, i think perceptions of it were very colored by the ending which was pretty widely uncontroversially considered to be one of the worst star trek endings of all time but i think that the series itself there's a lot of great moments in the series and i i also you know resonate with your choice of captain janeway you know I, i love that you've got you know Kirk always turning to Spock when there's a scientific problem, Picard always turning to Data, Cisco turning to Dax, but Janeway just solves the scientific problems on, on her own, you know, <laughs> more often than not in Star Trek Voyager. Absolutely. Yeah. She's always like calling down to Bellana in engineering and telling her to like do this or that to reconfigure, you know, the warp drive or yeah. I just I think it's really cool that she has that technical background and is sort of able to get in on the ground when there's like a technical problem and really help problem solve it. Well, a couple of years ago, uh, shortly after the conclusion of Star Trek Discovery's second season, you wrote a Gizmodo article arguing for (laughs) greater treatment of climate change in Star Trek. So tell me what inspired you to write that article and what the response to that article was. So this has sort of been a little crusade of mine, a mini crusade of mine for the last (laughs) couple of years, is that I feel very strongly that Star Trek should do more to tackle climate change as a franchise. And so I wrote an article for io9, Gizmodo's entertainment site, sort of laying out my 
my reasons for this, but I mean, essentially where this is coming from is I'm a, you know, science journalist who covers climate change, thinks about climate change all the time, is aware that this is this, you know, huge planetary emergency that we as a society have to deal with. And Star Trek and, you know, science fiction more broadly has always been a genre focused on reflecting on the problems of the present in sort of a far-flung future where we can come up with more imaginative solutions. And going back to the 1960s with the original series, there's a really strong tradition in Star Trek of talking about sort of the social, political, and scientific problems of the time, whether it's authoritarianism or the Cold War, which was a really big theme in the original series. In the 1990s series, there's a lot of treatment of a couple of different scientific issues that were sort of hot button issues at the time. Genetic engineering is something that comes up a lot. You have Mm -hmm. the eugenics wars in Star Trek. There's all these sort of fears about genetically augmented humans and what that will mean and will that create like new types of inequality. And so that's something that gets a lot of play throughout, I think, TNG and Deep Space Nine. And then there's obviously throughout the series been a lot of episodes dealing with artificial intelligence, the rights of artificial beings. So sort of Star Trek has always um, has always been on the pulse of all these like pressing social scientific issues that are sort of out there in the ether and, and people are talking about. But in my humble opinion, climate change and environmental issues more broadly have been really underserved by the franchise. I mean, we just haven't seen that many episodes dealing with an environmental problem head on, certainly haven't seen very many episodes talking about climate change. And I think there's historical reasons for that. Obviously, in the 1960s, the science of global warming was far, far less developed than it is today, although, you know, it, it did exist. Scientists were talking about this. And even in the 1990s, when they rebooted, it wasn't on the public and political consciousness to the degree that it is today. So it's kind of not surprising that those earlier generations of Star Trek didn't focus on climate change and sort of humanity's ability to alter the environment and all the problems that could create to the same degree that they talk about, you know, these other social scientific issues. But, you know, we're now seeing this revival of Star Trek with Discovery, with Star Trek Picard, with the new animated series that are coming out. We sort of have this whole new proliferation of Star Trek content, which is amazing and exciting. And I think it's a real opportunity to bring in one of the most pressing scientific, social, political, economic energy issues of our time and really dig in on how we could solve it. And maybe that involves exploring how climate change was solved in the 21st century world of Star Trek, which I don't think the franchise has ever really tried to show us. So I really want to know how we got into this utopia where, you know, we're no longer addicted to fossil fuels and staring down a planetary climate disaster. (laughs) Uh, Same here. (laughs) So do I. Um, (laughs) Part of me wonders if maybe Star Trek's unwillingness to comment on how humanity overcame climate change is just a reflection of right now our inability to imagine a suitable and realistic solution to the problem and therefore the writers don't really know what Mm -hmm. to write. What what do you think about that? I think that's absolutely true and I've written about more broadly speaking I've written about sort of 
the challenges of telling good environmental stories where it's not just like a doom and gloom apocalypse. So I, I think climate change is becoming a more prevalent narrative in pop culture, in science fiction. But I think you sort of hit the nail on the head there that it's very hard to imagine, you know, aside from like throwing some solar panels on the Golden Gate Bridge, which they do in an episode of Discovery, it's yeah. very hard to like holistically imagine, you know, what an industrial technologically advanced society that is no longer causing climate change looks like, because it is going to require this sort of like profound societal transition. Um, it's also very kind of abstract to a lot of people. There aren't necessarily clear cut villains when it comes to climate change. It's hard to write stories that have sort of a neat and tidy resolution within like a 45 or 50 minute episode framework. But yeah, I think this challenge we have as a society to imagine what a sort of post-carbon future would look like is very much reflected in the fact that we don't see, you know, a lot of science fiction meaningfully attempting to engage with that issue. This is actually something I wrote an op-ed for Polygon recently about, um, not about Star Trek specifically, but how I feel that Hollywood needs to do more to help imagine climate solutions mm -hmm. and how most treatment of climate change that we see in pop culture today is very dark and gritty and like you know, if we have a movie that's set in sort of like a post-climate change future, it's usually very like Mad Max and um, we completely failed to address climate change or to solve it. And so the planet is uninhabitable and, you know, we've reverted to sort of like roving bands of lawless people, you know, on this uninhabitable planet. It's very dark. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I think there is a big challenge to imagine a brighter future, but I also think that's a huge opportunity for Star Trek because Star Trek is this famously utopian franchise where we can imagine a future in which we've uprooted and moved past all of these other systemic problems. So I don't think there's any excuse for the, the writers not to take a stab at it. A while ago, you mentioned that overcoming climate change will be a major transition in the way that we acquire energy as a society. You mentioned the term post-carbon society. Maybe Star Trek's out here is that, you know, there was a major transition, a societal upheaval in the form of World War III between mm -hmm. now and the utopia that we see in Trek. Um, and somewhere mm -hmm. in that zone, we also discovered warp drive and presumably like the power mm -hmm. of dilithium crystals and, <laughs> and antimatter mm -hmm. and things like that. So maybe, maybe that could be Star Trek's sort of like way it explains a way. Yeah. I agree. Um, and actually, this this reminds me um, of something I meant to say in response to your earlier question about sort of how that article I wrote for Gizmodo was received. Um, in general, it received a pretty good reception. Um, I was a little surprised because sometimes commenters are like, don't bring climate change into my, you know, Star Trek <laughs> or Star Wars. That's not what I'm here for. Yeah. Um, but there were a lot of thoughtful comments. And one comment that I received was specifically about this World War III issue in the canon. So World War III takes place in like the mid 21st century in the Star Trek universe. And then obviously it's, it's quite terrible. It's a nuclear conflict, I think. A lot of people die. And there's sort of this 
post-World War III recovery in which humanity sort of unites under a global government. And then we make first contact with the Vulcans and we're, you know, ushered into this sort of utopian future. But there's this transition period where we don't really know what happened, right? Mm -hmm. And presumably during that transition period, we decided to revamp our energy system and, you know, move to cleaner forms of energy. But that's really never discussed in, in the series, as far as I know. One thing that this commenter who mentioned World War III brought up that I had never considered, but could be a plausible canonical explanation is the fact that if there was a nuclear war on earth, that could have led to a nuclear winter, which would have reduced global temperatures. So perhaps there's the explanation for why climate change never got so bad that we needed to do something about it. But still feels a little, little like flimsy to me. Um, yeah, so it feels yeah. like we could use some episodes explaining what happened between World War III and Birth of the Federation that helped us transition off fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And let's hope it's not a nuclear winter that solves the climate change problem. And let's hope it's not a nuclear winter. <laughs> that would be the opposite of how we want to solve our problems. Yeah. Well, yeah, despite the gaping holes in the story of climate change in Star Trek and our mutual desire for more direct tackling of this issue of environmentalism in Trek, there have been a couple of instances of environmental themes in Trek. So we've got two episodes that we want to discuss, and then maybe also that movie with the whales <laughs> that we could reflect <laughs> on. Um, but the first episode that we rewatched for uh, this podcast is The Next Generation's Force of Nature. And uh, let me just recap this episode for our listeners, just in case they haven't seen this recently. So in Force of Nature, the crew of the Enterprise D encounters two Hikaran scientists who claim that cumulative exposure to warp fields is destabilizing their region of space, causing dangerous subspace rifts to form and endangering the habitability of their homeworld. And the Enterprise crew is initially quite skeptical about the claims that warp drive causes damage to the fabric of space-time. I mean, after all, the Federation has been using this mode of transportation for hundreds of years without much incident. And only after one of the Hikaran scientists takes drastic action by committing suicide to prove that these subspace rifts actually do occur, are Picard and company convinced. And in the end, the Federation sets a new warp drive law that limits travel to warp five except under extreme circumstances like emergencies. So Maddie, rewatching this episode, you know, it seems like a pretty blatant allegory for climate change. Uh, Maybe we can talk about some of the things that we liked about the episode and then maybe some of the things that we didn't like. Sure. Yeah, I agree with you that this episode feels very much like a climate change allegory to me. And um, this came out, I think, toward the end of Next Generation. It was a season seven episode. So certainly we're at the point in um, the series and in history where there were more conversations going on about climate change. I think end of Next Generation coincided with discussions about the Kyoto Protocol, which ended up being the first global climate treaty, not ratified by the U.S., but it was a big deal at the time. And so climate change was definitely more a part of the conversation by that point in Next Generation. And I feel that that's very much reflected in this episode. One thing that I think this episode does a really great job illuminating is 
sort of the idea of scientific uncertainty. And so, as you mentioned, these, these scientists have these models suggesting that warp drive is having this negative effect, this harmful cumulative effect on space, but the effect is too small to be observable. And so, as you mentioned, Picard, Data, Geordi, the Federation scientists are all, you know, very skeptical. And they basically tell these Picard scientists, hey, your, your theory is interesting, but there's no way to prove it. And so mm-hmm. what you're saying is something that could have these, you know, profound ramifications for how we've built our society, but you don't have any proof. So we're just going to study the matter further. But if that theory is right, that is a really, really big deal. So there's this question of, at what point should we be taking action or what sorts of mitigation measures are appropriate, even if we can't know everything that's going to happen in the future? And I think that is very much akin to a lot of the conversation we've had about climate action or climate policy over the years. In the case of climate change, the, the underlying science is completely settled. We know that human carbon emissions are warming the planet. What we don't know is exactly what impacts we're going to experience, how intense those impacts are going to be. You know, we don't have a crystal ball where we can gaze into the future and say, there is going to be this extreme wildfire here on this state and this number of hurricanes in, you know, the Gulf Coast in 2070. And so we can't say exactly with certainty what the impacts are going to be. And so we have to make decisions and act on imperfect information. And I think that's very much the situation that the crew of the Enterprise initially um, faces in this episode. Now, obviously, as you mentioned, one of the Hakaran scientists takes this radical action in order to prove her theory is correct. And so that's, I think, another sort of really interesting plot twist is at what point are we going to see people taking more radical actions because science and scientific consensus is moving too slowly and they see the risks as too great. Captain, the Hakaran ship is moving off. There is one person on board. It is Sarova. Doctor, what is going on? I don't know. Captain, may I speak to her? Mr. Wolf, open a channel. Sarova, what are you trying to do? They wanted proof. I'm going to give it to them. I'm sorry. Captain, the Hikaran ship's engines are beginning to overload. I believe Sarova is attempting to create a warp core breach. No. Prepare for impact. I really love what you said about scientific uncertainty. And I had a very frustrating conversation not too long ago with a climate skeptic, you know, who rightly pointed out that your models are not exact. Your models always have some error. Your models are uncertain. And I know this because I've run climate models in the past, not not for Earth, but for other planets, because <laughs> I'm a planetary scientist. But I know right. that there are assumptions. I know that it can't accurately predict every single thing on a planet. It's not built to do that. But 
to live your life and not take action because you are not 100% certain about an outcome is kind of foolish. I mean, like you would still put your seatbelt on when you ride in a car, even though you're not 100% certain of whether or not you're going to get into an accident that day, you know, you'd still just take Mm -hmm. safety measures. And I feel like um, this like claim that our models are not 100% certain about exactly what climate change will do to our planet, and therefore we shouldn't act at all is such a terrible way to approach this issue, this catastrophic Yeah, I agree. It's very much a red herring and a delay tactic that's, you know, used not only by individual climate skeptics, but by the fossil fuel industry and these really powerful lobbies to say, hey, well, maybe this is happening, but, you know, our models can't tell us exactly what's going to happen. Are we really going to risk these multi-billion dollar industries um, based on what some model tells us? And I mean, the counter argument to that, of course, is, well, our models have been very good at predicting the course of climate change to date. And perhaps, you know, every model hasn't gotten everything right, but they're constantly being improved as our data improves and our sort of modeling techniques improve. And they've been pretty darn good to date. And the potential outcomes that they're showing are very, very, very serious. And even if we can't be 100% certain, precautionary principle says we need to, we need to take them seriously. And we need to take some action to prevent these perhaps lower probability, but very uh, catastrophic tail end scenarios from from coming to fruition. And um, yeah, even if even if we don't see the worst possible model outcomes in the next 10, 20, 50 years, we know what's going to happen in the long term if we don't do anything. And I think that's, to get back to this episode, very much in the spirit of what these scientists are saying. They're saying, hey, you know, this is something that our models tell us is going to happen. We can't measure it right now because the effects are cumulative and it hasn't gotten so advanced yet. But if we do nothing, the outcome is that our planet becomes completely uninhabitable. And is that something we want to risk for the sake of gallivanting about the galaxy quickly? Yeah, I just love this episode because it puts us, the viewers, in the shoes of the climate skeptic in that when I watch an episode of Star Trek, I identify with the Starfleet crew. And so in this episode, it's some outsiders telling our favorite crew members hey, wait, your your way of life is endangering our existence. Uh, I feel like we're all meant to be Geordi in this episode. You know, a man who's in love with his technology, in love with his engines, really unwilling at first to consider anything that claims to threaten the nature of his way of life. And then seeing him realize that he was wrong was really powerful to me. How do we miss it, Data? Beg your pardon? How do we miss the connection between warp drive and the formation of the rift? Between the two of us, we've logged thousands of hours on these engines. We're supposed to be warp field experts. Certainly we're wrong this time. Technically, Geordi, we were not wrong. Sorova's theories rested on assumptions which were unprovable. Seems to me she managed to prove them pretty conclusively. By using methods any reputable scientist would never employ. Yeah. She was willing to die in order to make her point. Should have listened to her more closely, Data. We reviewed Sorova's research to the best of our abilities. And we were prepared to continue studying the problem. But that was unsatisfactory. Yeah, I can remember times when I was a little stubborn. 
Trying to get people to believe me when I didn't have enough proof? I do not believe you would have resorted to such extremes. But she had to, just to get us to listen. Why was I so resistant? Perhaps because her aggressive methods created an adversarial situation. Yeah. Maybe I was taking the whole thing personally. I do not understand. Maybe I was a little threatened. The thought that warp engines might be doing some kind of damage. Jordy's reaction when he's telling Data, you know, maybe the reason he didn't want to listen to these scientists at all is because he personally felt threatened. Um, I think that's how a lot of us feel about the idea of being told that just how we're living our lives and our status quo is a threat to the future habitability of our planet. And we're going to, you know, as a society have to change so much about how we live. I mean, that's a scary thing. It's, I think it's pretty natural to feel somewhat defensive when confronted with that information. Definitely. Were there some things about this episode that uh, you didn't like or that you feel didn't quite do the issue of climate mm -hmm. change justice? <laughs> well, um, not really a, a climate issue, but I did feel that they spent an inordinate amount of time at the beginning of the episode talking about Spot, David's cat, <laughs> and um, David's attempt to train the cat. It just felt like this very bizarre segue that um, yeah. took away precious minutes that we could have been using, sort of discussing in more detail the effects of warp drive and the Federation's deliberations around whether to impose warp speed limit. Like, that was the crux of the episode, and yet we have this really long wind-up where we're talking about a cat for no reason. Spot. 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 Down. Spot. Down. Down. Spot. Down. This is down. Down is good. This is up. Up is no. Also, I recently rewatched all of TNG, and so I remember that Spot was initially a he and is a she in this episode. So that was a little bit of a strange continuity thing, but the cat just, you know, I, I don't think really needed to be in there. Um, and the other thing I will say, not about the episode per se, I felt like the episode did a pretty good job sort of capturing some of these issues we've been talking about around uncertainty and climate denial and, and sort of weighing the risks of action versus inaction but they never followed through with it. Um, so they imposed this warp speed limit at the end of the episode based on this irrefutable evidence that using warp drive is in fact having a harmful effect on this region of space. And then it is like almost never discussed again in any future Star Trek episodes. And right. so what happened? I, I mean, this is this is a huge like federation altering decision. And the fact that it is just completely dropped after this episode is kind of disturbing to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That was my biggest thing, too, is that we'd never get a reference to this warp speed limit ever anywhere else. You know, I've seen some of the technical manuals that like maybe the reason is because Starfleet ships 
altered their warp propulsion technology somewhat. And like those variable geometry nacelles that Voyager has, you know, like the flappy ones, do that flappy thing because it makes warp drive less harmful to the fabric of space-time. Uh, and one could perhaps make the argument that the detached warp nacelles in season three of Discovery take that to the next logical extent. But, you know, I, I feel like this is signaling that the way the Federation tackled this particular issue is to adapt to it rather than to mitigate. And in climate change, I think that the more pressing thing that we need to do is really mitigate rather than, you know, adapt and build more AC units. <laughs> because <laughs> uh, especially with the fact that a lot of the, the world, the developing world that isn't responsible for much of the climate change is being hit the hardest, just us in the United States adapting to the rising temperatures is, is not enough to really mm -hmm. solve this global problem. Uh, and so there's maybe a little disconnect between this particular Star Trek example and how they solved it in the Star Trek canon and what we need to do to combat climate change. Absolutely. I think I would definitely agree with that. And just to follow up here, there is sort of this raging debate within climate circles about technological solutions versus mitigation and how much we should be putting our eggs in the tech solution basket. And there's, you know, some people out there who will argue that, oh, we're just going to invent technology that's going to, you know, make all of these problems go away in the future. And we'll be able to continue living our lives exactly the same way we do today, whether that's, you know, fusion energy or carbon capture that's going to suck CO2 out of the sky. We're just, you know, so intelligent and innovative that we're going to come up with some magical tech solution and solve the problem. And I think what you're rightly getting at here is that that kind of is how the warp problem is treated in this episode and subsequent episodes of Star Trek is, you know, the Federation just comes up with a fancy solution. And now we don't have to change the way we uh, travel around space. We don't have to sort of take any of these necessary mitigation measures that you know, I think it's fair to say that even if the Federation developed a new type of warp engine that completely neutralized these effects, it would take some time for Federation scientists to develop an entirely new type of warp engine. And in the meanwhile, there would probably be a few years at least or decades of, of massive societal disruption because all of a sudden, you know, we have this speed limit that's really going to affect everything from interstellar trade and commerce and military operations is going to have huge, profound effects across the Federation. Um, and so I think at the very least, if the writers decided, oh, we're just going to explain that away because there's some fancy new technology, there could have been an episode or two exploring, well, what happened in the interim, you know, mm -hmm. and what sorts of new problems emerged because of the speed limit and how did we deal with those? I think that would have been the logical follow-up and uh, it's kind of a bummer that Star Trek never went there. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's uh, jump to the Voyager episode, 30 Days Now, the second of the episodes that we rewatched for this podcast. So again, let me recap the episode for those listeners who may not have seen this one um, in a while. So in 30 days, um, the starship Voyager encounters a literal ocean floating in space, this spherical ocean, which is inhabited by a species that call themselves the Manaeans. And this ocean is held together by an artificial gravity generator at its core, 
but the containment of the ocean seems to be slipping away. And Lieutenant Tom Paris leads an expedition on the Delta Flyer, uh, where it does this really cool scene where it goes like splashes into the ocean, and, you know, it's, it's like a submarine. Uh, and they discover that the cause of the anomaly isn't that the core is malfunctioning in any way. It's just unable to respond to the changes in the ocean caused by the Manaean's oxygen mining operations. And in the end, the crew is put in this really tough situation. Do they try to force the Manaeans to stop their disastrous mining operations, or do they let them knowingly cause their own demise? And um, the climax is that Paris decides to take things into his own hands and results in his demotion from lieutenant to ensign and earns him a 30-day confinement, uh, solitary confinement in the brig uh, when he tries to basically go back into the ocean and disrupt the mining operations to stop this catastrophic ocean destruction <laughs> uh, <laughs> against Janeway's orders, uh, which was to let the Manaeans have autonomy and uh, sovereignty over their own world. So uh, again, Maddie, uh, maybe we can just talk about some things that we liked about this episode and um, then f- wrap up with some things that you know may- maybe could have done more uh, to-, to address climate change directly. Yeah. I liked this episode. I, I I didn't get quite as strong of a vibe from this one as Force of Nature that this was necessarily meant as a climate allegory, but it's mm-hmm. definitely an environmental episode. It definitely has strong themes of human industry having a, a catastrophic and unintended side effect on an environment and um, sort of the tough decisions that the society that is having those impacts is going to have to grapple with as they, you know, learn more about sort of the consequences of their actions. And so um, I think one thing that's quite climate relevant here is this idea of like political intransigence. So um, there's this politician who's sort of voyagers, like liaison representing the government to try to understand what's going wrong with the ocean. And he just keeps getting more upset as the Voyager team presents their findings about how the ocean is going to lose containment and how their mining operations are what's destroying the ocean and how the only way to stop the damage is to shut down or radically alter their way of life. But it seems that the reason he's getting upset is not because of the environmental crisis itself, but because telling the truth will hurt his political career. And I think that's a really nice stand-in for the many politicians who have sort of been resistant to the idea of the science of climate change, often at the behest of fossil fuel donors and, you know, powerful individuals who um, could hurt them politically. I'm detecting a breach in the containment field. Any way we can seal it? We might try reinforcing the field with a deflector beam. Do it. Try hailing the Delta Flyer again. Nothing. What do you think's happened? They may be too deep to receive a transmission. They may have had an accident. It's possible. Possible? Captain, I'll need a better explanation than that. What am I supposed to tell the Council? Clarify something for me. Are you more concerned about the lives of the people on that shuttle or your political career? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember when 
you know, Voyager did their analysis and uh, handed over the report to this politician. And they're like, is anybody going to read this report? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it'll be passed on to like this bureau mm -hmm. of that thing. And <laughs> eventually, maybe if anybody agrees to take any action, which nobody agrees to take any action on our world, um, <laughs> you know, maybe some incremental change will occur. But um, the Voyager crew knows that that will not be enough. And this episode is interesting in that in comparison to the one that we just discussed in that our Starfleet crew, our heroes are put in the opposite situation where they are sort of the all-knowing observer who realizes this other world is causing its own climate crisis. And then what do we do about that? And it's almost like a prime directive situation where like you want to help them, but you can only really help them help themselves. If they're unwilling to help themselves, what do you do? It's so difficult <laughs> to know. Yeah, I found that contrast of watching these two episodes back to back very interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, of course, as you say, you know, the prime directive prevents Voyager from interfering directly. They sort of have to present the information, let the Manans make their own decision. But then, of course, Paris just decides to go rogue when he realizes the government probably isn't going to do anything. And he tries to save the ocean himself by uh, attacking one of the oxygen refineries that's damaging it. And so, I thought that that was also a really interesting sort of exploration of climate activism or environmental activism and what it means to be an activist and um, some of the moral dilemmas activists face, you know, is it worth risking my career? Is it worth breaking the law to do something that I very strongly feel needs to be done in order to prevent much worse consequences from occurring and affecting my community, my, my planet. And so I think that the moral dilemma that Paris faces very much uh, mirrors what a lot of climate activists who are, you know, on the front lines doing direct actions, maybe taking action to stop fossil fuel pipelines have experienced. And so I thought it was nice that that was such a kind of key part of the episode. I know you're upset, Lieutenant, but when you're in a room with me, you check that attitude at the door, understood? Captain, I'm we sorry, We can't but... expect an entire society to change because we think they should. Then you agree with me? Yes, and we gave them the help they asked for. We told them what we know. Now it's up to them to do what they think is appropriate. You heard that, Consul. They're not going to do a damn Maybe thing. Maybe not, but that's their prerogative. Captain... End of discussion, Lieutenant. At 1400 hours, we'll resume a course for the Alpha Quadrant. Is that clear? Is that clear? Isabel. Yeah, I think in both episodes, we saw passionate advocates for change really take drastic action. Like you said, Paris going rogue and taking the Delta Flyer to stop the oxygen refinery from continuing. It's very re reminiscent of, you know, people trying to turn off the oil pipelines. Is that right? Um, oil pipelines. Yeah, yeah. there's there's been a, a growing amount of activism around that in recent years, for sure. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, in, in Force of Nature, the um, the suicide mission to show Picard and crew that the scientific theories were actually right by doing this experiment that ended up in the destruction of their ship and the loss of their life. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you're absolutely right that this really strongly mirrors the fact that in our modern society, we're coming up to the point where does getting people and governments and corporations to acknowledge and face climate change and make 
real drastic fundamental change head on require similarly extreme actions to start that ball rolling and to get people en masse to, to change their lifestyles. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a huge question. <laughs> yeah. It's not a question with an easy answer. I guess if I can make one slight criticism of how this is portrayed in the episode, mm-hmm. I was, I guess a little surprised by just the speed of Paris's transformation into a into a radical ocean activist I felt like there wasn't necessarily any indication that the Monets were going to do anything with this information but there also wasn't a whole lot of evidence to the contrary right we Uh just had this one guy who received this report he seemed unhappy about it he was going to go back and you know tell his government about the report's findings and Paris just became utterly convinced in like a five-minute meeting that the Monets this entire society wasn't going to do anything because this one, you know, bureaucrat was handed a report and didn't seem happy about it. And, um, <laughs> you know, for someone who's been in Starfleet his entire career and been in a lot of situations where he had to um, sort of not impose his morality on whatever situation or society they encountered, it just seemed like a very quick turn based on a lot of assumptions on his part. Um, now, of course, we also learn in the episode that Paris is just like a huge fan of oceans and has read Jules Verne growing up and has this just sort of deep fascination with the ocean. And so there is this, this very personal connection for him. And it's clear that this cause of trying to save the ocean is, is very personal on a lot of levels. So that is a nice sort of motivator that the episode introduces but I don't know for for a Starfleet officer I think he would you know wait to see a little bit more evidence of what was going to happen before deciding to defy his captain and go completely rogue like that (laughs) yeah yeah I guess um maybe this can be explained by the fact that Paris has always been a little bit headstrong and just like does kind of what he wants to do um and has a history of you know getting in trouble with authority sometimes um maybe in the past for less great causes. Um, I don't actually know what landed him in jail uh, the first time, you know, early on. I need to rewatch those early episodes of Voyager. I haven't visited them in a while. Yeah, it's been a while for me too. I can't say I remember. There's also like this weird um, moment when before Paris has fully made up his mind that he's going to steal the Delta Flyer and go try to disable an oxygen refinery where Balana is talking with him in the holodeck and she kind of implicitly encourages him to do this. And then mm-hmm. that is never addressed later on. And that just kind of left me scratching my head a little like, why did Balana do that? And why did it never come up again? And I don't know. I guess she just wanted him to stick with his principles and was proud to see him, you know, feel so passionate about, about a cause. But yeah, that, that was a little curious to me. Well, speaking of oceans, uh, there was another ocean that Star Trek visited, and it was actually our own in the past. Um, So one of the greatest environmental stories in all of Star Trek is Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, where Captain Kirk and crew have to go back in time to, I believe, 1986 uh, Mm -hmm. and rescue, or rather kidnap (laughs) two (laughs) humpback whales to bring them back into the future to repopulate 
the species, which had gone extinct by the 23rd century. And uh, this is also that the humpback whales could communicate somehow with aliens that were searching for them and evaporating all of Earth's oceans. So long story short, uh, it's sort of an allegory for maybe we shouldn't hunt things to extinction, disrupt ecosystems, things like that, maybe a little bit less direct on the climate implications. Um, but Maddie, do you have any reflections on the one with the whales? I love the one with the whales, absolutely. Um, so you're right, it's, it's less of a climate allegory and more just a very clear allegory for the crisis of commercial whaling and conservation more broadly. But I, I think this, this one was pretty on the nose. I mean, the film came out in 1986 and uh, I just looked this up to be sure, that was the very same year that the International Whaling Commission placed a global ban on commercial whaling. Wow. So this came out sort of at the height of environmental activism around, you know, concerns that commercial whaling was driving species like the humpback whale to extinction. Greenpeace had a lot of activism and campaigns in, in the 60s and 70s and 80s around saving the whales. That was sort of the touchstone environmental issue of that time. And mm. so it, I suppose, not surprising in that sense that it was so central to the plot of this episode. But yeah, very cool to see Star Trek take like a very pressing and topical environmental conservation issue and really, you know, write a film in which that was at the heart of the plot and story. You know, we were talking sort of at the outset of our conversation a little about how it can sometimes be challenging to craft a, a digestible narrative around issues like climate change and sort of these big abstract things that involve a lot of scientific models and maybe it isn't so easy and obvious for us to always see the human dimension of them. I think this is a good example of how you can write interesting plots around environmental issues because, you know, there is sort of a clear mission. We have to get the whales, we have to bring them to the future. And there's you know, this, this sort of clear directive that we need to save this thing. And that thing is not some abstract like atmosphere or ocean or fabric of space time. It's, it's whales. And, um, and we see them in the movie and they put them on a starship and ship them to the future. And um, I think, you know, who can argue with getting whales on a starship as, you know, a fun plot point. So I think maybe it's a little bit easier to write an interesting story around saving the whales and saving an atmosphere. But it is a great example of just the fact that compelling, interesting, fun environmental stories are very much within Star Trek's wheelhouse and, and capability of telling. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just so tangible when the subject is save the whales, right? And even though it's not really a story about saving the atmosphere or the climate, I do remember this wonderful line from Spock when they exit the time tunnel, wormhole, whatever it is that they use the, uh, or no, it's the slingshot around the sun, right? After, after they slingshot around the sun and uh, go to earth and they try to figure out when they are, uh, Spock says, judging by the pollution levels of the atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> we've landed in the year blah 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 blah, and so um, yeah, I thought that was a that was a fun line. Yeah, too. 
I I remember that there was a brief mention in there of not climate change exactly, but humanity's energy transition. It's at some point when they're on Earth and um, I think they're trying to like hunt down a nuclear weapon or something. Mm -hmm. Um, Where are the nuclear vessels? (laughs) Where are the nuclear vessels? Right, exactly. Classic Chekhov line. Um, (laughs) So great. Um, and, and Spock actually mentions at one point that humanity had what he calls a dubious flirtation with nuclear fission before mm. the start of the fusion era. And that's actually one of the few direct lines that head on addresses the fact that humanity went through an energy transition. Um, obviously, uh, not one in which nuclear power winds up playing a big role in the future. Spock is pretty clear that the nuclear fission era was dubious and we abandoned it um, in favor of fusion. But yeah, one of the few sort of tangible moments in Trek history I can remember where sort of humanity's evolving energy systems in, you know, the 20th, 21st century are addressed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Well, uh, let's finish off this podcast by imagining some future tangible moments um, that we would like to see in Star Trek. As you mentioned, we have so many great new shows currently airing or in production, and I'm really excited to hear your ideas for how contemporary Star Trek can use these vehicles to tackle climate change more seriously, especially just like what, which of the many series currently active right now would you choose to tell your story? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think I would have to go with Discovery just because I think Discovery has already demonstrated sort of clear interest in environmental issues. And you can see this in a few different places. You know, they have this four drive mycelial network that they use to get around space. And I believe somewhere in season two, um, there is some discussion of how they start discovering that the use of the spore drive is, is harming this intergalactic mycelial ecosystem. It, Mm. it, It never becomes Um, I don't think they devote an entire episode to it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there is a nod to the fact that this new propulsion system may also be having harmful environmental consequences. I also just like the fact that like fungi and earth organisms are such a sort of key part of how they get around the galaxy in Discovery and that we have this astromycologist Paul Stamets at the helm who's helping them develop this new propulsion technology. Paul Stamets, by the way, is a real life mycologist who has given TED Talks about using mushrooms to clean up pollution and address climate change and do all sorts of cool things. So clearly um, one of the writers on Discovery was familiar with the real life Paul Stamets and tried to imbue his Discovery namesake with some of his flavor. And so I think there's already a demonstrated interest among the Discovery writers and a potential within the universe they've set up to do more on environmental issues, potentially more episodes that could be an allegory for climate change, whether that's through continued use of the mycelial network, harming intergalactic space organisms, or or anything else. So I would love to see Discovery tackle 
this issue more. Um, also, Discovery, like many Star Trek series before it, is big into time travel. So yeah. if we wanted to, we could have the crew of Discovery go back to the mid-21st century and see what went wrong with nuclear power and how we transitioned to fusion and clean energy. I don't think that would be... Um, too out of bounds. They've already gone a thousand years into the future. Why not go a thousand years into the past and show us how the Federation confronted climate change? Oh, that would be so fun, right? To, to come back in time to the now, at, like like the Voyage Home did, uh, and have, have a, a fun adventure in the 21st century, but also have a you know, almost teachable moment about you know how to get get uh get us out of some of these issues i wonder if star trek picard is actually going to do that i don't know if you've kept up to date with some of the um trailers and images coming out of the production of season two of picard but it looks to be that time travel will be a central part of that they've brought back q first of all for picard so that's sort of their vehicle for you know anything can, can happen now q can send you back in time and uh the latest poster of uh star trek picard season two has los angeles looking very very contemporary and mm -hmm. so if, if you look that up it seems to me like a hint that we will be seeing some kind of contemporary earth in season two of picard which is really exciting that's um, fascinating. Yeah, I did. I hadn't seen those yet. I'll have to check out the trailers for it. Yeah. When I was thinking yeah. about this, uh, in, you know, inclusion of more direct allegories to climate change in Star Trek, I also leapt to Discovery, though, just like you. And the idea of the mycelial network and the already established canon that there is a wrong way to use the mycelial network. Um, and uh, I think this even goes back to season one where they are in the mirror universe and they see how the mirror universe Terran empire is abusing the mycelial network and causing so much damage to it. And then, as you said, in season two, that continues. And so I think it would be really fun if in season four, sort of like post burn, right? So like the Federation no longer, or the whole galaxy essentially no longer has dilithium. And so the Federation had sort of disintegrated um, and now is trying to rebuild itself. But meanwhile, you know, outside of the Federation, maybe there were political entities, empires, maybe what the Dominion or uh, whatever's happening in the Delta Quadrant, those, those entities, those civilizations may have decided to switch their propulsion system away from mm -hmm. dilithium using warp drive to the spore drive. And now everybody outside of the Federation is using the spore drive, but that is causing major harm to the mycelial network and perhaps also creating the gravitational anomaly that randomly mm. is popping up. I don't know if you've seen the, the trailer for season four of Discovery, but there seems to be this gravitational anomaly mm -hmm. that's wrecking havoc. Um, and so we know that the spore drive somehow is related to dark matter. Dark matter is only felt through gravity. So this all sort of just lines up in my head, but maybe those connections are a little more tenuous than I think they are. But, <laughs> but it would be so cool if if the Federation was essentially a developing nation now in mm -hmm. the geopolitics of the galaxy that is suffering from the effects of the quote unquote more advanced or developed civilizations that are running their economies on spore drive jumps uh, instead mm -hmm. of warp drive. And it is up to the Federation to now tell the, you know, the Dominion or the Borg or whatever, whoever's out there, look, please stop using the spore drive 
you need to revert back to warp drive or something like that because you are destroying our space and you're going to destroy yours as well. And it would be cool to see um, the Federation from that point of view and also Stamets from that point of view where the spore drive is like his baby, his thing, and then maybe him having that Geordi-like transition that we saw Geordi undergo in Force of Nature and, and try to argue against uh, using the spore drive and making that kind of shift would be I love that idea. Yeah, it reminds me, I mean, it's kind of like um, what we were talking about with Force of Nature a little while ago about how the use of warp drive has these cumulative effects. And so mm -hmm. in order to reduce the damage, you know, all of the players in the galaxy, not just the Federation, but you know, the Romulans and the Dominion and everyone would have to decide collectively to stop using it to reduce the damage. But if one major player in the galaxy decided, ah, screw those other people, we're just going to keep doing, you know, what we've always done, that's going to have negative impact on everyone. And the groups that are going to be hardest hit are often, I mean, in our world, um, the, the people hardest hit by climate change are often the ones who did the least to contribute to the problem. And what you seem to be suggesting with this sort of idea for a plot line around the mycelial network is sort of a, a galactic climate justice group that is saying, don't do this, it's harming us, but is going up to bat against sort of forces and entities much more powerful than it. And um, mm -hmm. I really like the idea of sort of introducing that kind of a power dynamic. Another thing that you just made me think of in there talking about the burn and the fact that we don't have dilithium anymore is, you know, maybe in a future episode or season of Discovery, they find a new planet that's full of lithium and this kickstarts like a race to extract it. And so maybe we could have a plot line where, you know, we discover a planet that has enough lithium to furnish everybody's warp drives for the next three centuries, but there's a species that lives on this planet that doesn't want it extracted or that, you know, would um, be harmed by the level of extraction that, that we want to do. And then you get into sort of the idea of resource colonialism and whether it's okay to make like green sacrifice zones for the sake of, you know, allowing everyone to continue living the way they want to live. And something I actually write about a lot in my work as a science journalist is sort of some of these hidden costs of the energy transition that we're going to have to deal with around resources. So in order to build all of the electric vehicles and wind turbines and solar panels that we need to deploy to confront climate change, we're gonna to have to do a lot more mining of, of rare metals, including lithium. And you know there are going to be costs associated with that. And how do we sort of balance the environmental damage and compensate the communities where that mining is gonna occur is an emerging question. And one that I think Star Trek, given um, the centrality of lithium to its propulsion system, would be in a really good position to tackle if the Federation happened upon a lithium-rich planet in the future. I love that idea too, that we can also tackle the idea of like extractive colonialism and capitalism with this idea. Uh, and I believe the planet in the finale of season three was such a planet with like a huge dilithium ore content or like a pl the planet was completely made of this substance or something crazy like that. So I think yeah. that's it's yeah. prime to uh, launch off. And I hope the writers also are thinking along the same lines as you, because that would be such a fun plot line to explore. I think that would be really cool. Yeah. I will also say discovery aside, I would love for one 
season or episode of, you know, one of the new series that's coming up to pick up on the idea of the warp speed limit again. <laughs> yeah. um, if we want to be canonically consistent at this point, I think we probably need a post PNG episode acknowledging that the warp speed limit was never adhered to or that we, you know, developed some sort of technology to get past it. But one thing I thought would be really interesting would be to have an episode exploring like why we never talked about the warp speed limit again. Maybe there's an economically or politically powerful group putting pressure on the Federation. Maybe there's traders who want to be able to go faster for economic reasons or even a military faction that, you know, is putting pressure on people high up in the Federation, telling them this warp speed limit is untenable. And, and we could have a story about like corruption within the Federation as an institution that leads us to sort of a canonical explanation for why this warp speed limit was, was never adhered to. I think that would be really cool. And uh, another thought I had was that uh, a big conversation or a growing part of the climate conversation today is this idea of geoengineering or using some sort of radical technology to cool the planet again. And I think um, geoengineering is a topic within climate change that lends itself really nicely to sort of fictional narratives because it is very dramatic and it could have really terrible unintended consequences. So maybe the crew of some starship happens upon a planet that is you know, experiencing dangerous climate effects as a side effect of industrialization. And there is some sort of radical solution, something they could spray into the atmosphere to help cool the planet, but it could have really widespread catastrophic side effects. And maybe the people on the planet are, are divided over whether to implement the solution. And, you know, the crew of our starship has to decide whether to give that technology to the government or not interfere and potentially let them wreck their atmosphere. I think, I think that would be a very sort of topical way into some of the discussions we're having over these radical climate solutions today. Yeah, the topic of geoengineering is it's it's sometimes scary uh, to think about. You know, a lot of these kind of crazy ideas about how we can engineer our planet. And, you know, you, you think about one factor like, oh yeah, that aerosol will cool our planet, but like also will it rain out into the oceans and cause drastic acidification or something like that? You right. know, there's so many unintended consequences in this huge network of a planetary system that we call earth that uh you yeah. know you, you can never quite map out all of the consequences and um, and people are divided over it and people would presumably be divided over it on a different planet that was grappling with the same questions and um to have a federation class starship come along that has seemingly magical technology that can solve all their problems might look really attractive to some people but if it also potentially had very harmful side effects, that's sort of a, a moral choice that the Federation would have to make, whether to help those people in that way, or, you know, is that a bridge too far? Is that breaking the prime directive? I guess a, a smaller scale idea I had that's sort of related to that is I feel like throughout Star Trek, we've um, heard about weather control systems, including on Earth. And um, there's an episode, I, I think it's in Deep Space Nine. Um, I might be wrong about that, but there's an episode where someone hacks the weather control system on Ryza mm. and the climate becomes terrible. <laughs> and um, I'd love to see an episode sort of just playing around with weather control technology 
you know, maybe on Earth, maybe we can get some sort of explanation for why there's a planetary weather control system. Maybe that even has something to do with how we solved climate change. Um, yeah. So that's something I, I think the, the franchise could do more to explore. That sounds like a really great episode for Lower Decks to tackle. I could imagine a really hilarious <laughs> comedy episode about so like Boimler trying to fix the weather control system and then like Mariner accidentally screwing something up and then they have to work together. To, I don't know. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. Almost like one of those terrible campy disaster movies like Geostorm or Day After Tomorrow, yes. but done in like a Trek way. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I would love that. <laughs> That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the one other plug I'll make for future plot lines in Trek is maybe something to deal with the dangers of climate denial. I think we saw that a little bit in the, the Voyager episode we were discussing with the politician who hears something he doesn't want to hear and maybe isn't going to act on the information with the urgency that he should. But I think there could be a way of dealing with the dangers of climate denial uh, more head on uh, by, you know, creating a situation. I was thinking the other day, maybe we could have a planet that's like three weeks out from planetary heat death because of a solar flare, but half the population of the planet refuses to accept that the solar flare <laughs> is going to happen and won't evacuate. Mm, and yeah. um, I, I think there's a way to create a really sort of urgent situation that uh, addresses that issue and, and sort of the dangers of burying our heads in the sand. Absolutely. Yeah, that is definitely something that uh, is a story that should be told. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So lots of lots of ideas, lots of ways Star Trek could do it. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful with all these new series we have that maybe one of the writers will listen to this podcast or see something on the news that inspires them to uh, to write an episode tackling some of these issues. Mm hmm. So speaking of the news and climate, I know you do a lot of writing about this stuff. So where can people find you and your words on the internet? Great question. Um, I would say probably the, the place to keep most up to date with me is on Twitter. I usually tweet most of what I'm paying attention to and uh, writing about. So I'm at the Mad Stone on Twitter. I also run a newsletter for the science and science fiction curious. It's called The Science of Fiction. It's uh, sci, S-C-I-O-F dot fi, F-I. The newsletter got its start about nine months ago. And this was really just out of a desire for me to have a place where I could just endlessly geek out about the science and scientific themes in whatever I was, you know, watching on TV, reading about. And I recently um, did a rundown of terrible biology fails in Star Trek. So maybe that'll be interesting to your listeners. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a lot of stuff in there about sort of the intersection between science and science fiction more broadly. And um, I read a fair amount of climate fiction. So climate change is a topic that comes up pretty regularly. So the Science of Fiction is my newsletter. You can subscribe and you can follow me on Twitter at the Madstone for updates on everything else. Yeah, I highly recommend that newsletter to our listeners. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And there's more Star Trek content in the works, right? Yes, there is. I'm uh, planning a little mini series on various environmental and um, science themes in Star Trek. So um, if you sign up now, you'll be getting all of those updates in your inbox shortly. 
Fantastic. Uh, and my last question for you, Maddie, is something I've been asking all of my guests this year, because uh, we just went through a very terrible, you know, horrific in many ways, uh, year and a half with the pandemic, and then as well as, you know, many cultural and social events that uh, caused a, a lot of anger and grief and sorrow, um, as well as uh, spurring a, lot, a, a great deal of learning. Um, Moving now into hopefully what will be a you know new era, post-pandemic era, once people get vaccinated, crossing our fingers, everybody go get vaccinated. <laughs> um, everybody go get vaccinated. Yeah. Um, what is something that makes you hopeful about the future? It can be related to Star Trek or it can be related to your work as a science journalist or it can be related to neither one of those. But what is one thing that makes you hopeful for the future, Maddie? Mm, great question. I would say one thing that makes me hopeful for the future is, you know, we've been talking throughout this episode about what, what the best response to climate change is, whether we should be putting our eggs in the tech solution basket versus mitigation and sort of the balance there. I think something that's important for listeners and the public more broadly to understand is that we actually already have all of the technological solutions we need to solve climate change. We have carbon-free energy systems, technologies that are commercially scalable, that cost as little, if not less, than the dirty, polluting fossil fuel energy systems we're so dependent on today. We have better food production methods that are less climate intensive across all these different sectors of our economy that we need to transform in order to confront the climate crisis. The solutions by and large already exist. And that fact gives me a lot of hope that we don't actually need to invent some magical new technology or wait 30 years for the perfect energy technology to go from the lab to a reality. We have things we can deploy right now. All we need is sort of the political will to act. Uh, and we need an informed citizenry who's putting pressure on politicians to do the right thing. And I think increasingly I'm seeing um, a, a lot of widespread concern over climate change and realization that we need to step up and do something. And the fact that we're now in this moment where the public concern, the political will to take action and the readiness of the technology are all aligning actually does give me a lot of hope. And so it's not all doom and gloom in the future. We could, um, there, there is a path out of this road that we're on and we just need to, you know, do the work and we'll get there. Well, that is the absolute best note to end on. Thank you so much, Maddie, for joining me on Strange New Worlds. It has been an absolute pleasure to just uh, chat with you about our reflections on environmentalism in Star Trek and you know, hope together for more of this kind of stuff in Trek and in real life. So thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, Mike. This was great. That was Dr. Maddie Stone on climate change and Star Trek. Climate change is one of the defining scientific issues, if not the defining scientific issue, of our time. As Maddie and I spoke about, the implications of climate change go far beyond the scientific arena. This is a political, economic, and social issue too. So it is up to all of us 
scientist and non-scientist alike, to make a difference and hold the people in power accountable for the future of our planet's climate. And I hope that Star Trek does tackle the issue of climate change in the future, in a way that reminds us that if we come together, guided by science and guided by compassion, that we can achieve a future worth living for. Okay, one last instance of climate change in Star Trek that I just stumbled upon. So during the pandemic, I've been reacquainting myself with Star Trek Online, which I played a lot in college but left quite undusted as I got too busy pursuing my PhD. Anyway, one of the plot lines of the game that was added in recent years seems to touch upon themes of environmentalism as well as themes of xenophobia. And in true Star Trek style, I wonder if this is a social commentary about certain things that were happening in the real world just a few years ago. I'm still playing through this storyline, but if things go any deeper, I might just have to reach out to the Star Trek Online folks to see if they'd like to come aboard Strange New Worlds. Well... Until next time, enjoy the first few episodes from Season 2 of Star Trek Lower Decks, and I'll see you out there. This episode of Strange New Worlds came out on my mom's birthday, so happy birthday, mom. Thanks for always listening. Love you.